I want us to think a little bit this morning as we jump into this passage, and I, I want us to think about, does what we say we believe about who God is, what he's done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, does what we confess, our beliefs, our doctrine, if you will, match up with the behavior of our lives? So, so, so does what we say we believe actually match our conduct. Make sense? I brought with me uh, this, this chair this morning, and I need you to just kind of think along with me. Uh, this uh, is not a special chair. It came from the gathering place. You've seen these before. So here's, here's my statement that I believe about this chair. I believe that this chair is strong enough to support my weight. I believe that this is a sturdy chair, and that if I sit in it, it, it will hold me. That's what I believe. I'd stake my life on it. This chair is strong enough to hold me. Now, do you believe that I believe that? What could I do to demonstrate to you that I believe that this chair will hold me? You want me to sit in it, don't you? If I were to sit in this chair, this would demonstrate that I believe. What if I told you this? What, what if I described to you times when I'd seen other people sitting in this chair? And I described to you the way that they sat in it. I described to you that I, I felt that I was a, at least of equal size and weight and that this chair held them. Then would you believe that I believed that that chair would hold me? If I described what they did, would that convince you? You'd probably still like me to sit in the chair, right? If I would sit in the chair, this would convince you. But what, what if I were to take this chair, and instead of, instead of doing that, what if we took it to some... So there's people of you in the church here that actually know things about woodworking. We could take this to your shop, and we could disassemble every little bolt and screw, and we could examine this. We could see every way that it's strengthened. We could study the way that the joints are, are fit together. Maybe we could see how much glue there is in there. And we could dissect the whole thing, and we could have our belief strengthened that this would hold me. Then would that convince you that I believe that this chair could, could support me? Well, it still wouldn't convince you as much as if I sat in it, right? I mean, maybe I could teach a class on chair sitting, right? And, and I could get all of you together and I could say, if you were to sit in the chair, here's how you would do it. And this is the correct posture. And for an hour, we would study what it means to sit in the chair. Would that convince you that I believe that chair would hold me? Well, it's still not going to convince you as much as if I were just to walk over to the chair and if I were to sit in the chair. And at this point now, you believe that I believe this chair will hold me, right? And as we go through our passage today, I want you to see the way that Paul talks to the church at Philippi. And one of the things that you're going to see is that actions speak louder than words. I could talk till I was blue in the face that I believe this chair will hold me. And the thing that's going to most demonstrate that to you is if I'm actually sitting in this chair, right? And so it's like when James writes his letter. And James writes his letter, and he's talking with the believers, and he wants them to understand that, there's, that, that, that faith, things that we profess and things that we say we believe, must be accompanied by works that demonstrates the genuineness of the faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, James does, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, in the Christian life, it's important for us to understand that we don't just say certain things are true. We have to have the works that accompany that faith. It's been rightly said many times that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so it's not that our works save us, but our works must demonstrate that the faith we say we have is true. And as we go through the passage this morning, you're going to see Paul talking with the believers there, and it's not direct teaching. He's actually just giving them a travel update on his plans. Uh, This is Timothy's plans. This is Epaphroditus' plans. He's just going to give them this travel update. And by way of application, as we think about it, we're realizing Paul is putting his faith into action. Timothy is an example of someone who's put his faith into action. Epaphroditus is an example of someone who has put their faith into action. And you're just going to see this consistent thread that actions speak louder than words. That's the one thing I want you to catch as we go through the passage, is that actions speak louder than words. And my point is not that, uh, as, as Paul writes and as he describes Timothy and Epaphroditus, and as we think about our lives, I am not saying, that uh, you're going to come to three or four or five big crisis moments in your life where your faith needs to be demonstrated by your actions and you're going to be put to the test and hopefully you, at that point, demonstrate your faith. I mean, some of that might be true. There is times that God uses testing that way in our lives. What I'm actually saying is this. 24-7 actions speak louder than words. It's not in the three to four to five to six monumental crisis moments of life. It's in the thousands of mundane, everyday, minor details that our faith speaks through, is that our actions display what our faith actually is. Actions speak louder than words. What you believe about God was displayed by the way you've conducted yourself this morning from the time you woke up. In, in, in the attitudes and actions and behaviors of getting the family into the car and coming to church this morning, actions speak louder than words. In, in the ups and downs of this last week and the choices that you made and the um, decisions that you made, the things that you said, uh, all of this stuff is an example that actions speak louder than words. And it's one thing to say what we believe, It's another thing to look at the actions, how it actually comes out, because functionally, that's truly what we believe in in the everyday little moments of our life. And Paul is going to talk with the believers at Philippi. He's going to talk about some seemingly mundane things, some travel updates. And, and what you're seeing is his faith put into action. You're seeing the faith of Timothy put into action. You're seeing the faith of Epaphroditus put into action. And it will have, if we understand it, just an impact on us that we need to be, we need to be people whose faith, we don't only say the right thing, but we actually believe and live the right thing. It comes out in our life. Uh, because actions truly do speak louder than words. Make sense? That's where we're going today, and we're going to jump into the passage. What I want to do is walk through the passage and just explain it. 
we'll get to the end and we'll try to draw some application out of the passage. There's at least three points of application that I want to get. But first we just first we just need to walk through it. And you're going to see what I'm saying, that this is really, truly, it's just kind of a mundane passage in the sense of, uh, I, I don't mean mundane as unimportant. It's truly the Word of God. It's truly inspired. It's truly profitable for teaching and instruction. Uh, but it, it isn't hugely significant in the sense there's no direct teaching. Paul's trying to update the church on things that are happening in his life. And then we'll go through it and see how it applies to each of us. So let me get back to Philippians, and we'll jump in in chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 19. So remember where we've gotten so far in the passage. Paul has explained everything about his circumstances and his imprisonment and why he can still rejoice even in the face of hardship. And then he turns to the Philippians and he wants them to know, listen, you need to stay together as a church. You need to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You need to have humility, a, a Christ-likeness that he's going to go on that, that puts the interests of others first so that they would be selfish people, and he wants, the, he wants them to live this way. He wants them to follow the example of Christ, and he wants them to be a people who stick together and strive together side by side for the face of the gospel for the faith of the gospel. And so he kind of finishes this section of teaching, and in verse 19, now he kind of steps aside from some of the teaching he's been giving, and he updates them on all of the travel plans. He says this in chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So there's just this little aside. He says, listen, I'm hoping that soon I can send Timothy to you. Uh, he wants them to understand that he, he wishes he could send Timothy, but there's some reasons that it wouldn't be best to send Timothy back to the church at Philippi at this point. He wants them to understand that. He, he's just trying to explain, look, I, I wish I could send Timothy because he, he, says, he even says, I've got nobody like Timothy. I've got nobody who's willing to put the interests of Christ first is what he says. Uh, I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your wealth or they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And it harkens back to earlier in the chapter where he told them in chapter 2 in those first few verses that they need to put the interests of others first. And he says, Timothy is a guy like that. You know, other people, I couldn't send them back because they're, 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 what's interesting is that here there would be believers. They claim the name of Christ and they wouldn't put the interests of the Philippians first. How sad is that, right? And Paul says, but you, you know that Timothy would do that. His, his worth is proven. Uh, the idea there that that carries in verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth, what he's saying is he's been tested. His character has been tested, and it's proven worth. You know it. You've seen it. You've experienced it. Uh, Timothy would be great to send, but Paul is essentially saying, uh, I, I want to wait and see how this goes with me. Paul is in prison. He's waiting to see, is he going to get released from prison? And so one 
once I know how this turns out with me, then I'll be able to send Timothy on to you. And, and Timothy has been this great companion for Paul. He's been learning under Paul. Uh, he's not yet pastoring the church at Ephesus when Paul will later write to him the books of First and Second Timothy. But here he's working side by side with Paul. And Paul says, I'd love to send him to you. But for now, I, I need him to stay with me. I want to see how this goes. So and I, I'm not going to send Timothy yet. But I'm hoping that I get to soon and I'll be shortly behind. And one of the reasons he wants to be able to do that is he says it right in verse 19. I would love to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He, he knew that Timothy could, could go and, and kind of speak on behalf of Paul and Timothy would be able to report, this is what they did with your letter, Paul. They work things out. There's, there's, they're, they're figuring things out. They're striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. They're, they're walking in unity. They're not giving up hope. They, Paul wanted the encouragement of finding out what this letter did. And he knew if he could send Timothy, uh, Timothy would be able to report back. And he, he, Paul himself would be encouraged with the progress of the gospel there at Philippi. This is Paul's intent and purpose in writing this letter. Is He wants to see the good news of the gospel progress there at Philippi. He wants to see the people grow. But he says, for now, I can't send him, so I'm not going to, hopefully soon, and then hopefully I'll be able to follow after that. So then verse 25, if Timothy is, I want to soon, but not yet, later, he's like, so now, now here's what I am going to do. I am going to send Epaphroditus right now. He says this, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. He, he, he stacks up like five compliments on Epaphroditus. Um, and, and he just says, listen, I want, I want you to know I'm sending back Epaphroditus. I, I've considered it, and I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus. He's my brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So remember in the storyline how this goes. Paul is in prison. The church there at Philippi wants to help Paul with a financial gift. Uh, and so the way they do that is to send Epaphroditus, one of their own, with the financial gift to Paul, probably in Rome. And, and they send him to Paul to be there. But a lot, probably along the way, could have been once he got there, something, Epaphroditus fell gravely ill. And news of that travels back to the church at Philippi. I mean, it'd be like if one of our own was sent on a missionary journey and we find out they're, they're at death's doorstep. We are concerned for them. We're praying for them, right? And, and, and that's what happens here at the church at Philippi. And Epaphroditus knows that they're concerned that for him. And, and, and Paul says, listen, I should send him back because I want you to know that he's, he's recovered. Now he's doing well. Uh, you think about how slowly news would travel in that period. And you didn't get updates instantly. And Paul says, the, the best way that I can encourage you that Epaphroditus is okay is to actually send him back. And he's, 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 he's my brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's your messenger. They, he truly was sent by the Philippian church with this gift to try to minister. Presumably, he would have stayed with Paul and continued ministering uh, until Paul uh, decided there was some other task for him. But at this point, Paul says, it's actually time for you to go back. You need to go back to this church and encourage them. And, and, and it says that Epaphroditus was distressed because 
that he knew, that the Philippians knew he was ill, verse 26. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And Paul wants them to understand that, you know, if, if Epaphroditus had really died, it would have just compounded the sorrow that Paul was experiencing even in his imprisonment. And he says, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, Receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back. He says, listen, this church is concerned about you. They, they're concerned about your health. And, and Epaphroditus was worried what they were thinking about him. And he wants to send him back so that they can be encouraged, so they can be relieved. We understand what that's like to be concerned for the welfare of another. And, and I, I'm feeling it personally, just as you, in the ch you as church brothers and sisters are concerned for me and my family and my mom's well-being. And we understand the tension, the anxiousness, the distress that that causes. And Paul just wants them to, Paul wants Epaphroditus to go back. And it could be that some in the church would say, why are you back so early? We sent you to go help. And Paul says, listen, he, he's a brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's your messenger. He ministered to me. And I'm sending him back because uh, he was distressed. He knew you were worried. Um, I can rejoice because I, I know that it'll be glad for him to be reunited with you. And he says, receive him then with all joy. And it's appropriate to honor such men, he says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, that Paul wants the church to recognize the, the great sacrifice that Epaphroditus made, and, and he wants the church to just to be willing to honor this one who was willing at great cost to try to advance the gospel by ministering to Paul in his time of need. And that last little phrase is somewhat difficult to understand, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It almost sounds, at first glance, as if Paul is kind of giving a backhanded compliment to the church at Philippi or something, like Epaphroditus did what you all couldn't. Your service was lacking. It's not what he's saying. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a good thing that the church at Philippi, they loved Paul. We, all through this letter, we've talked about their warm, close, personal relationship. They desired to help Paul. What they couldn't do, what they were lacking, was the face-to-face -face ability to minister to Paul. In that day and age, if you wanted to send a financial gift, um, you couldn't Western Union, you know, wire money. You couldn't do the PayPal thing, uh, Apple Pay. Uh, like somebody had to take a bag of money and they had to start walking. And this was close to 800 miles, one-way trip, if, if indeed Paul was in Rome, which we would think. So you think about that. I mean, this was not just, yeah, I'll run down the road this afternoon uh, and take this to Paul because I know he really needs it. This was uh, signing up for a long, dangerous, risky task. And Paul says that Epaphroditus is to be commended for the risk that he took. So uh, we, we kind of see this. Uh, we're in the middle of the letter. There's still more teaching to go. A lot of times Paul updates his travel plans and things towards the end of a letter. But here we're right in the middle. And why does he put it in the middle? I think part of what Paul is doing is he's holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus and say, look, here's, here's these two guys that serve as examples. 
The things I am encouraging you as a church at Philippi, these guys are they're doing it. This is their characters, uh, their character, their quality and conduct of life are, are things that, that ought to be held up as an example. Remember that earlier I said chapter 1 verse 27 was somewhat of a linchpin command that, that so much of the book was going to hinge around. And he said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It could be translated that he said, only conduct yourselves or live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Paul, Paul wanted them to be working out their salvation as we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 2. And now, because of that, he, he's holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus and saying, look, here, here's two guys that are living as citizens worthy of the gospel. They're conducting themselves in these... You, you know Timothy. You know his proven worth. You, you've seen how he's worked side by side with me in the faith of the gospel. I can't send him yet. I wish I could. So I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Now, he's one of yours. Uh, he, he, he's, he's also living as a citizen worthy of the gospel. He, he served well. You should honor him that for the sake of the gospel, he put his life on the line. Timothy is a guy who puts the interests of others first. And in so doing, he puts the interests of Jesus Christ first, is how he says it. And he, he wanted them to see how important this was back at the beginning of chapter 2. And so I think he holds these men up as examples. And, and the Philippian church would know and understand far better than we would the implications of this. So we've kind of walked through the passage. This is what Paul is explaining to them. So what does it mean for you and I? Uh, I've got three, three things that I'd like us to pull out of this by way of application. But before we even get to that, I want to take an aside. Here, here's a little rabbit trail that just, I, I want us to think about, well, how do we read our Bibles, right? How do we get application from God's Word? Because this passage is, uh, in, a, in a particularly profound way, it shows us something that is true every time we come to Scripture. Uh, it's just much more obvious this morning as we go through it. Uh, especially as you read the New Testament books, the thing that I want us, this, this is kind of like just a, this is a class. I'm just teaching how to study your Bible. We'll get to that on Sunday night, right? How to read your Bible. So class, here's the principle, ready? Uh, this is gonna. This is gonna sound shocking, uh, and and uh, we'll we'll explain it and understand it. But you are not the central character of the Bible. Does that make sense? Uh, the the Bible wasn't primarily written to you. Does that make sense? Uh, it is a message to you from God. But first and foremost, uh, here's what I mean. If you were to take your Bible and read this, and if your first question is well, what does this mean to me? This was God's direct word to me, Aaron Hart, 2018, in Shimong, New Jersey. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. If, I, if my first question was, what does this mean to me? I could very quickly say, whoa, Paul wants to know how I'm doing. And apparently a guy named Timothy is going to be sent to me really soon. That's God's word to me. It was written to me, and Paul is on his way, right? And we quickly see how uh, facetious that is in a verse like this. It makes no sense. Uh, but I, in a less obvious way, that's true of all of the scriptures, that it wasn't first and foremost primarily written to us with us in the center of the story, right? First and foremost, it's a story about God 
and what he has done through the person of Jesus Christ. And God communicated that supernaturally as he recorded scripture and wrote it down in letters to groups of people in particular times. And it's the inspired word of God, fully authoritative, fully preserved so that we can learn from it. But our task as we approach Scripture then is to understand who was this written to? This is a letter with real people at real times in real situations. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. They knew who Timothy was. They knew who Epaphroditus was. And there was a specific message that God was communicating that Paul communicated to the Philippians through this letter. And now our task years later with the inspired Word of God is to approach this Scripture and to say, what did it mean to them? That's where we start. What did God communicate to them? What did this mean to the people who heard it? Now we have to then take it and see, okay, what does this reveal to us about who God is? What does this reveal to us about the way God has worked? What else do we know about the whole of the inspired scripture and how does this fit into the story of redemption and how God has worked through the person of Jesus Christ? And then we take these, only once we've done all of that can we then figure out, now why did God want me to read this? Now, what do I need to know about the fact that Paul wished he could have sent Timothy, but he decided he couldn't? And, and now what do I need to learn about why uh, Paul decided to send Epaphroditus? Only once we've done some of that homework, then can we figure out, well, what is God's truth for me? And so we're going to try to pull three of those applications out. And that's, that's true every time we approach Scripture. It's just much more obvious in a passage like this where there's truly no direct teaching for us, right? There's truly... Uh, this is just some travel updates that would have, were between Paul and, and the Philippian church, and yet there's great truth for us as a people to glean from all of this. And so I want to just pull out three of these applications. First, there's a couple of things to learn about the topic of emotions, and we're not going to say everything that could or should be said on this, but I find it interesting that there's a couple of really neat uh, principles to be gleaned, uh, truths that this helps us understand about the topic of emotions. We're going we're gonna to get to this a little bit later on uh, in the book when we get to Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Many of us have that verse memorized, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? So in a few chapters, Paul is going to say be anxious for nothing. He doesn't want people to be anxious. Notice that this passage is filled with anxiousness, a brotherly concern for the well-being of others. And so it just, we're going to look at it more later. I won't say everything now, but it just helps us to understand that in chapter four, there's some kind of anxiousness we're not supposed to have. And here there's a kind of brotherly concern that is actually um, good and godly. And yet we wouldn't want it to morph into something that then we were forgetting God's goodness and faithfulness and his sovereignty in control. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, where he's talking about Timothy, and, and he talks about, uh, he wishes he could send Timothy, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That word concerned, exact same word as chapter 4, verse 6, for anxious. Uh, and so Paul is saying, listen, here's, here's Timothy. I don't have anybody like him who will genuinely be anxious for your welfare. He'll be concerned for your good. And, and as he keeps going, then you get to Epaphroditus, and he says um, that Epaphroditus, verse 26, he's been longing for you all. He's been distressed 
because you heard that he was ill? Like to the point of losing composure, a mental anguish, Epaphroditus is really concerned because he knows the people at Philippi are concerned. And Paul knows if he sends him back, verse 28, uh, that I may be less anxious. Paul, Paul knows this will help me be free from anxiety if I send him back to you. And so just I want you to catch that tension, and I'm not solving all of it for you today, but we'll look at it in, as we get to chapter 4, verse 6. We'll dig into it a little bit more. But just understand the, the complexity of, of the emotions. Another place that you see in this emotion and the complexity that Scripture recognizes, and I want us to recognize it as well, is, is this concept of emotion, that joy, because through the book, in a few places, we've talked about needing to have a confident, quiet joy, even in the midst of hardship. Joy does not eliminate sorrow. I want you to see the sorrow emotion in this passage, and as you go down to verse 27, uh, where Paul is talking about how Epaphroditus was sick. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him and not only on him, but all on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Um, Paul knew that if Epaphroditus died, uh, it, it would have just compounded the sorrow that he was experiencing. And he was experiencing sorrow. I mean, he's in prison. His life is on the line. Chapter 1, people are speaking ill against him. There's opposition to the gospel. And Paul says that, that, that that's a sorrowful situation to be in. And often we think that joy and sorrow are completely opposite. You can't have both, right? And yet, I want you to see and be encouraged in the fact that Scripture, our God, is big enough for complex emotions. Our God is big enough for emotions that seem contradictory. And sometimes we think that if I'm going to count it all joy in trials, then that must mean I can never have sorrow. Well, that wouldn't be the picture that Scripture paints for us. It's not even the picture that Paul paints for us in this book of Philippians. Because earlier, as he was going through chapter 1, remember, and he's talking about his imprisonment. He's talking about people speaking badly against him. And he said, listen, I can rejoice because the gospel is advancing. And we talk about this quiet, confident joy, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of other people's sin who was making life difficult. And we said that doesn't excuse their sin. God doesn't turn a blind eye to that sin. But we can have confidence in a quiet joy because we know what God is doing to advance the gospel. And yet, I want you to hear this, that doesn't eliminate sorrow. And Paul was sorrowful in his imprisonment. And he also um, knew that if Epaphroditus had died, it would have compounded sorrow upon sorrow. And so uh, some of you are going through those kind of sorrowful situations. My wife and I find ourselves in this situation where like, my heart is literally breaking at what is happening with my mom. And there is sorrow. But that doesn't mean, it's not exclusive of joy, that we can't have a quiet, confident joy that God is accomplishing good and will work out his plans and purposes because we know the end of the story, right? It doesn't mean it's going to end up the way we want here on this life, but we know the end of the story. Revelation chapter 21, right? And, and, and after some of the events of the end time, and after the millennial kingdom, and after the great white throne judgment, and after the, the battle to end all battles where Satan is defeated in the forever state, when God establishes the forever kingdom, and there's the new heaven and the new earth, 
And, and there's this, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the end of the story. So there's a quiet, confident joy, even though right now some of you have told me your stories, and I know things that you have been going through in the last weeks and months, and it may look like Satan is winning some of the little battles because right now death is real. The enemy is real. We fight not against flesh and blood, but there's this real presence of evil. But brothers and sisters, we can have joy even in the midst of that sorrow because we know the end of the story. And there will be a day when there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more tears. And we rejoice in that, right? And our God is a God who's complex enough to handle those conflicting emotions, both the joy and the sorrow. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, be be painfully careful about the truths you are reading as you listen to preaching, as you read books. There is a whole vein of teaching that is incredibly popular, prosperity gospel teaching in the world today that just tries to encourage you that if you have enough faith, if you live the right way, God will pour out health and wealth and prosperity and you can somehow escape life's sorrows. And that is straight from the pit of hell. And, and, and we, we need to be people that realize and understand that, that this life right now isn't yet working the way it's supposed to. It's because our hope is in a life that's coming in the future, and we, we rejoice in that. And so we, we understand some of these truths about emotions. We're going to keep looking at the one uh, in the future uh, about the anxiousness that Paul had, and we want to be encouraged with some of that. The, another, a second point of application that I would like to make is, is this, simply that Timothy and Epaphroditus, even Paul, they're not elite, Okay, They're not held up as examples as like this is some super spiritual class that the, none of the rest of us can attain to, right? That's not, what, that's not what Paul is saying. They are really truly examples and models that this is true of all believers, of all generations, in all times, in all places. It's not as if this is an elite class that's reserved for pastors and missionaries and Epaphroditus and Timothy, right? This is a, this is a truth, uh, uh, something that we should all be striving to, that we, that we put our faith into action. Actions speak louder than words, and when push comes to shove, hopefully we are people who put the interests of others first, that our worth would be proven through testing, that we would um, take risks to see the gospel go forward. Stephen Lawson said this, all believers should be like this because those, speaking of Epaphroditus and Timothy, all believers should be like this because those who are in Christ are saved to serve. Every disciple has Every disciple has family responsibilities assigned to them by their father. No saint has the luxury of being served while not serving others. We must fulfill the task that God has assigned us to do. 
And, and, and so we want to be those kinds of people who are seeking to serve as we ought to serve, to realize that we are truly servants, slaves of God. If you come back to verse um, 22, where Paul's talking about Timothy, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Very literally, that word serve could be slave. So in the verb form, he has slaved with me in the gospel. To be, to be a servant, a bond servant, a bond slave of seeing the gospel progress. And, and here again is another one of those instances where Paul's not using the very narrow definition of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for sins so that all who place their faith and trust in Christ can have forgiveness of sins. He's not using that narrow definition when he says that Timothy served with him in the gospel. He's talking about more, a, a more broad scope and application of what the gospel can accomplish and the way the message goes forward. And he says, Timothy served. He's a servant. He's a slave of the gospel. And, and that's what we should seek to be. It's not an elite status. It's every follower of Christ is, is a servant of God. And we ought to be such. In the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, if God has called you to be his servant, why stoop to be a king? If God has called you to be his servant, why stoop to be a king? And this is something that each and every one of us ought to do. They're not, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are not an elite, unattainable class of Christians. This should be each and every one of us that we should be people who put the interests of Christ first. We need school teachers who put the interests of Christ first. We need business owners who put the interests of Christ first. We need stay-at-home moms who put the interests of Christ first. Retirees who put the interests of Christ first. Healthcare workers who put the interests of Christ first. High schoolers and college students who put the interests of Christ first because they realize I've been called to be a servant and therefore I want to put my faith into action. Actions speak louder than words. I don't want to just believe the right thing. I don't want to just say the right thing. I want my life to actually back it up, not in the three, four, five big crisis moments of life, but in, in the everyday mundane, the way I use my words, the way I use my money, the way I use my time. I want my life to back up what I say I believe because actions speak louder than words. And, and, and keeping on that same thought, here's the third and final point of application, that we, we, uh, there is no disconnect between doctrine and behavior, Okay. Don't get scared of that big word doctrine. Just the, the, what we believe and what we say is true. There's no disconnect between our words and our behavior. Now, now sometimes our words and our behavior don't match, uh, and that's, there's still no disconnect. Our behavior is telling us what we actually believe. Our behavior is telling us our true doctrine. We might get a different doctrine to come out of our mouth, but our behavior is actually living out what we truly believe. And this is where you have the quote in your bulletin where it says this, Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul then have understood that Christian commitment means losing one's life in order to find it, forfeiting the whole world but gaining one's soul. A divided commitment to the gospel, as Jesus never tired of saying in various ways, is actually no commitment at all. A divided commitment to the gospel 
is actually no commitment at all. And we want to be people whose actions speak louder than words, that there's, that there's a continuity between both our words and our actions. And I, I, uh, Doug, I had some verses that I threw in from the book of Luke that, that could just kind of show you. I want you guys to see this from Jesus' words. This is what he said, that he wanted us to understand that there was no disconnect. And so in the book of Luke, and I'm going to start in Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24, and here's what Jesus said. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And verse 24 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this is going to be consistent with Jesus' teaching as we go through this. In chapter 14, he says this, chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. And as he finishes this example, he says in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you catch that there's no room for a divided commitment, that we need to be people who are wholly living out the truth of the gospel and that our actions actually back up our, our words, that the two are consistent. Chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says it one more time. There'd be plenty of other places we can look, but no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And, and as we go through this, I just want you to see this, the extent to which in this small mundane little He's, Paul's recording travel notes here, and you see an example of Timothy and Epaphroditus and even Paul himself, who, who their lives, their words, backed up what they said with their mouth. There was no disconnect. The two went together. It was a wholehearted commitment. And look at the risk that Epaphroditus was willing to go, um, that, that he put his life on the line. Presumably, maybe he got sick on the way en route. It would have been a whole lot safer to hole up somewhere or turn around and go back or something like that. But Paul makes it explicit in the verse that he, that he was near to death for the work of Christ, that it was, it was because of his commitment to the gospel going forward that his life was at risk. And, and we look at that and we say, is the gospel and its spread a purpose and a cause that's worth putting life at risk for? And that's hard for us to think about, but it is. If we say we believe it, let us be a people who are, what if God would call one of our own to take the message of the gospel to the nations. And we all as a church knew that they were putting their life at risk by taking the gospel to that place. Would we support and encourage and pray? Or would we find spiritual ways to talk people out of that risk? If we say we believe this truth, then let our, let our actions back our words and let us be people who see that the gospel is truly worth it. And that, and that, that uh, it's a message that needs to be spread. Calvin, in commenting on this, said that Epaphroditus would rather be negligent as to health than be deficient in duty. Is that true of us? 
that we uh, uh, that our actions back up our words and that what we say we believe about this truth we're willing to risk to that extent may we be people who recognize that our actions truly do speak louder than our words and if you're here today and you don't know Christ as savior this truth of the gospel you don't have a personal relationship with Christ or the hope of the forgiveness of sins we would invite you to that today that you would recognize that you you uh, without a relationship with Christ are condemned in your sin and you need to to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ. You can do that by, by confessing your sin and trusting in what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Speak with someone that's around you. Speak with us afterwards. We would love to uh, um, talk further about those truths. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, and we want to be a people who uh, don't just say the right things. Um, we believe them so much that it affects our lives and the way we live. Help us to do that as a people, Father. Thank you for these examples that you have given to us in Scripture. May we continue to learn from them. We ask and pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.